You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. We're going to be talking about the church, uh, both the local church and then the universal church with a capital C. Um, when we're done, I hope that we can begin to answer three questions with a little bit more biblical wisdom. So I think they're on the screen. So the first question is, what is the church? You know, if we're going to talk about the church, we need to have sort of a common ground for what that is. Um, and what's God's purpose for the church? And then lastly, what is our role as Christians in that, in that role for the church? Um, I'm not trying to answer all questions and possible debates on this. That would be a little bit more ambitious than I think we have time for this morning or that I'm even qualified for. Um, but I think it's really important that we dive in and really focus on some of these more theological, weighty conversations. Um, I think sometimes it's tempting to leave these conversations to trained pastors, experienced theologians, um, and there's a lot to be gained from their knowledge and experience, and we should listen and pay attention when they talk. Um, but sometimes it's in the actual act of wrestling with it ourselves that we can come to know God a little bit better um, and, and, and thinking these things through and how they apply to our lives and our situations and here in our church. Um, I think we grow and deepen in our relationship with, with Christ. And so I think let's, let's not ignore the, the more, let's say, oh, that's somebody else's, they'll figure it out and they'll tell me what to believe. No, like this is, this is ours. This is our faith and we can work it out together with fear and trembling. Um, Irvin Budislik, I think I'm saying his name right, is a lecturer of New Testament in Croatia at the Biblical Institute of Zagreb, and he says, in the end, true belief is not manifested on some declaratory level, but is shown in the lives of believers, in the everyday activities and practice of what it is called the church, through mutual relationships. As we dive into these questions, I hope that we can sort of start to live some of this out. Um, if you're not a Christian, I hope the time spent this morning on these questions gives you new insights into the church not just the worldly organization that people often refer to, um, but the people themselves that comprise the church. There's a lot of righteous pain and sorrow over injustices committed by the institution of the church throughout history, even modern history. We are broken and sinful people and desperately in need of God's grace and love and forgiveness. Accordingly, the church is tainted with sin and in need of salvation. Hopefully the message this morning helps you to begin to contextualize the church's failings in light of God's plan for the church. Kids, Eleanor, Fair warning, we're gonna talk about some of the more of those uh, advanced topics this morning. And I wanna really challenge you, again, especially the older kids, to, to really dive in and not be afraid to, to pay attention. And, and I really think about how this applies to you at work, at school, I guess not work for the kids, but um, school, friends, et cetera. So what is the church? Um, before we can discuss God's plan for the church, we have to have that common ground, right? Um, kids, does anyone have any ideas what the church is? To, uh, Teddy? Hey, Teddy. Do you know what the church is? Any ideas? Family? Yeah, that's a really good start. Yeah. Anybody, any other kids? Eleanor, do you know what the church is? No? All right. So in, in my preparing for this sermon, uh, I read several different definitions crafted by a whole lot of different theologians to define church. Um, many of those definitions are fairly nuanced. Some talk about the local church, some talk about the global church, some talk about the Old Testament church, some talk about the new, you know, they're very specific to different things. Um, but in this context, I think little less is actually more. Uh, Wayne Grudem, who's a theologian and general editor of the ESV Study Bible, in his book on systematic theology, defines church succinctly as the community of all true believers for all time. So the community of all true believers for all time. Sort of like what Teddy was saying, it's a family. 
Primarily written in the Greek, the word for New Testament often translated as church in our English Bibles is ecclesia. Maybe some of us have heard that before. Don't worry. I don't know a whole lot of Greek. We're not going to spend a lot of time with Greek. But I do think it's, it's fun to look at the word ecclesia, church, how we translate it, and, and how that understands and informs our understanding of church. So, so the word ecclesia literally means gathering or assembly of people. Sometimes it's translated in English to assembly, as in Acts 19.32, where it says, Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. It's also translated as church, which is how we often see it. Uh, in Ephesians 1.22, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. It's the same word, ecclesia. Um, when we think of the church, we should think of a gathering. Church is not a solo activity. There's no church of me, myself, and I. It's, it's the people gathered together. Um, interestingly enough, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint also uses the word ecclesia to translate the Hebrew word for assembly, um, one such example is found in Deuteronomy 5.22, as Moses is presenting the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. Moses says, these are, the ten co- these are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly. There on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. The authors of the New Testament chose to use the same word ecclesia that the Greek translation of the Old Testament used when referring to God's chosen people. Not exhaustively, but predominantly. In fact, in Acts 7:38, as Stephen is about to be stoned, he says, This is the one who is in the congregation, Ecclesia, in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. The word translated congregation in the ESV is the same word, Ecclesia. Stephen's word choice draws connection between the Old Testament congregation and the New Testament church. The latter is simply the outgrowth of the former. If we go back even further, if you'll allow it, we'll see that the same word is used when Isaac tells his son Jacob of the promise that God made to him. Isaac says in Genesis 28.3, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you might become a company of peoples. Again, it's that word company is ecclesia. The church is not a haphazard development or an afterthought, but rather God's plan from the beginning of creation. In Genesis, we see God calling Abraham to be set out from the people unto the Lord. Abraham's family develops into the nation of Israel, and in the rest of the Pentateuch, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we see the congregation, the assembly of Israel, gathered before God at Mount Sinai, worshiping him. It's clear, though, even from the beginning, that the law, the crushing weight of the law, um, is too much for a broken and imperfect people. And so God continues to reveal his will by sending first Christ, and now, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit. The New Testament church empowered by the Holy Spirit, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament assembly. As God gathered the Israelites to him at Mount Sinai, Christ now gathers us to himself as the church, his bride. Now here on earth, we get a foretaste of what Christ is building in heaven, where he now resides at the right hand of the Father. Thus, the church is the community of God's chosen people across all time. This includes Adam and Eve, Esther, Abraham, Paul, Priscilla. It also includes our brothers and sisters in Gainesville, Burkina Faso, Bolivia, China, all people, all time. Fairly uh, comprehensive there. Um, As Julie explained in his sermon series on Ephesians earlier this year, Christ is also the head of the church. And it's really important to note our relationship, you know, who we are as a church is is integral to that, is our relationship to Christ as head of the church. Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, Colossians, the Psalms, really all of the Bible affirms the headship of Christ. For example, Colossians 1.18 says, and he is the body, the church, he, uh, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in everything he might be preeminent. And Ephesians 1.22 says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church. But Jesus isn't just the head or ruler of the church in a cold and distant manner. There are several passages in the New Testament that describe the relationship between bridegroom and husband, or bridegroom and groom, husband and wife, and, and how that's compared to our relationship as the church to Christ. Um, you know, Ephesians, John, Mark, Corinthians, and Revelation all point to this. Christ loves the church in a way that is far too great for us to comprehend, and that love is personal and deep. In fact, Ephesians 5, 25, 27, 5, 25 through 27 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We shouldn't miss the way these passages are written. Church is singular. Every time, church is singular. There is one groom and one bride, one head and thus one body. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We can't fully understand the church God's people, the body of Christ, unless we realize that there is but one body in which all true believers are united across time and space. This is not an interesting idea or some future, you know, hope that we aspire to, but this is a present reality. One church. So kids, I know that was a little bit of a background, so I apologize, a little boring. Becky warned me. Um, what do you guys think about the church now? Like, has, has, have you ever thought about church that way as a, a collection of people, God's people? Aiden, what do you think? Do you think about church? Does that make sense, that church is God's people? Ellie, Izzy, have you guys thought about it that way before? No? Okay, yeah. Evan, yeah. Oh, yeah, there you go. All the time. That's right, yeah. <laughs> for better or for worse. Um, so I think at this point it would be fun to have a little uh, exercise or an activity. So can I get some kid volunteers up here? Come on up. Yeah, don't, don't raise your hand. Just come on up. You guys want to come up? Come on. We're going to play a little game. Does Hadley want to come? Thinking about it? Okay, Eleanor's already ready. She's drinking and eating back here, making me look bad. All right, so uh, Ellie, can you grab the Bibles over there? And we're going to put the Bibles on this side of the room. Can you just, uh, right here, uh, here, actually, I'll grab two, as long as the speakers don't get me. So we just, let's space them on the floor. Forgive me for putting Bibles on the floor. Um, and then you're each, the goal here is that each one of you is going to try and move the Bible from here to maybe the middle of the room. Sorry for the people on the far side. Um, but you can only use one body part, okay? And your head, I guess because we always have Jesus. Um, so, uh, so let's, uh, what, what body part do you guys want to use first? Your arm? Okay, you can use just your arm, but not your hand, just your arm. Well, that's what you said, you said the arm. Okay, so, so you guys come over here. Eleanor, you can help too. Are you ready, Aiden? Becca, you gonna come? So here, Becca, you come over here. 
and you're gonna have to try to move the Bible from here over to there using just your arm and your head, okay? Well, yeah, because we always have Jesus. He's always there, even if we don't know it. Um, now, you can't use your legs. We didn't pick legs, so I don't know. You don't have to get down. Well, you, you picked the arm, Izzy. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm going I'm to count to three, and then you guys can start, okay? One. Hey, Aiden, it looks like you're using your toes. I don't know. One, two, three. <laughs> Eleanor's not even trying. Becca, do you understand? Play-by-play. Play. Okay, well, Izzy is in the lead, but it's not a race. It seems like Illy, uh, they've all adopted a sort of shove uh, method. All right. Good work, Eleanor. So let's pick uh, maybe, let's do, hold on, let's do one more, let's do one more body part before we do applause. Um, do you guys think you can do it with your eyes? No. No? All right, maybe we'll be done then. Okay, let's round of applause. So kids, did that make a lot of sense? Did, did that, was that easy? Uh, she'll have fun, Ellie. That's, all right. Was that, was, that, was that pretty easy, Aiden? Sort of. Do you think if you had to use just your eyes, it would have worked? What if, what if you used just like your pinky toe? Pretty hard, right? Sometimes I think that's what we look like when we try to do things on our own. Um, either individually or as a church. Each part of the body works best when it's working together with the rest of the body and ultimately the head. If we hadn't used our heads, we wouldn't be able to think, right? The, the same is true of the church. When we try to do things on our own, we look silly. Um, when we try to operate in isolation from the rest of God's people in here on earth, we miss God's intention for his people. There is one body and there is one church, and we are most effective in fulfilling God's purpose to the church when we believe this and practice this. And, and, and I think that's easy to say, but I think, well, you know, we could go out here from today, and we could say, well, there are other churches in the area, but, eh, we're doing our thing here. Or, you know, there's some cool churches in other countries or other places that are doing things. Maybe they're part of a denomination, maybe they're not. But we got our thing here, and we're pretty busy, and, you know, we don't have a lot of volunteers, so we're just going to do our thing. I, I, think, I think that's what we look like. We're trying to move the Bible across the room with just our eyes. Um, it's a little silly. Um, and, and I think we should stop and reflect on that, and, and honestly think about how we can, as a church, move forward. And, and move forward in unity with other churches. Um, so, what's, so, so let's say we do all that. What's actually the purpose of church? What's God's plan for the church? <clears throat> both local and universal. Um, well, there are a lot of verses in the Bible that point to God's purpose for the church, both directly and indirectly. I want to start with Ephesians 3.21. Paul has just discussed the unity between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church, and then moves to pray for the Ephesians, asking that they would be filled with knowledge, understanding, and ultimately Christ himself. He finishes with an explanation of why by saying, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus and Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. While the church is involved in many aspects of life and can have many varying ministries focused on various contextual factors, the ultimate goal of church is to bring glory to God. Across different peoples, locations, and cultures, this must remain the same. If we lose this, we're no longer God's people. This should shape individual involvement in the church, and it should shape our larger direction as a church itself. This should, this should shape everything. 
The church brings glory to God primarily through two methods, evangelism and the building up of the church. The Great Commission, as recorded in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, gets it this pointedly where it says, hi. That's not what it says. Um, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, and they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We, the people of God, have been tasked by Jesus to share the gospel by making disciples of all nations. This discipling involves both evangelism and enduring relationships between Christians dedicated to maturing in their faith as they pursue Christ together. Without both elements, discipleship is incomplete and will not last. Disciples are made by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Neither element can be ignored. Both must remain the focus. It's worth noting that this is not a call to individuals. Jesus did not give the Great Commission to individuals, but gave it to the gathered disciples at the beginning of the New Testament church. Not too long ago, yeah, you okay, Honor? Not too long ago, uh, they had been gathered together, hiding in the upper room, disoriented because Christ had been crucified, and everything fell apart around them. Now, Jesus stands before them as the resurrected king and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Her shoes. The next word is go. While the emphasis in Greek is on making disciples, to do this effectively, we must go out. The two are related, they're linked. Go out from our homes, from our Christian circles, and our comfort zones. We see both the authority of Christ and going on display when the disciples received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and responded by sharing the gospel in languages that everyone could understand. As Chewie preached previously, 3,000 people were added to the church that same day. Christ has all authority and has tasked us under that authority. We should not be surprised when our obedience is met by God's power and marvelous things start to happen. It's also important to see the continuity between God's revealed plan in the Old Testament and the revealed plan in the New Testament. Genesis 12, 1-3 says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In the long arc of the biblical narrative, we see the Great Commission given to the beginning of the New Testament church is a fulfillment to the promise that God gave to Abraham. Through the church, the true sons and daughters of, the, of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed as we share the message of the gospel, the good news. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the Great Commission that we just read, is often the more popular version of the Great Commission. It sort of neatly sums it up all into one neat and tidy paragraph. But we'd be remiss to not look at the other versions of it that are also recorded in Scripture. Mark 16, 14 through 20 says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents in their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Luke 24, 45-49 
John 20, 19 through 23, Acts 1, 4 through 8, all offer variations of the same command, either recorded, recording the same event or recording uh, Jesus giving that command at different instances. Um, each time it's given, it's given to the group, it's given to a group for the benefit of the nations. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making a special appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9 to the church dispersed across Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is God's purpose for the church that we might proclaim the gospel and through doing so making disciples of Christ. Not disciples of Peter, Paul, Chewy, or Louis, but of Christ. However, the church is not called to build the church. Nowhere in the scripture do we find this command. Christ is the head of the church. And as Jesus says in Matthew 16, 15 through 18, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a popular text and not without controversy. Among believers, there's a debate about what the rock is. Is it Peter or is it Peter's confession? Um, but what's not contested is that Jesus will build his church, not us. Peter and the other disciples go on to preach the gospel before small crowds, large crowds. They work huge miracles. They disciple countless of people, and they, they start churches and send people out. But they don't build the church. God builds the church. It's ours to proclaim the message of the cross, but it's the triune God who softens the heart and softens hearts and calls his children to his own. So if that's what the church does, what do we do? Is it any different? Or, or, or do we do anything different than the church does? Aren't we the church? Is there any exception that says, you know, if, you're, if you really like public speaking or if you're really good at, uh, you know, talking to people and engaging with strangers, you can do all those things. But maybe you're quiet and shy or, or maybe, maybe you just don't like talking or maybe you feel nervous about your faith or not as confident. Uh, then you don't have to do it. That's not in there. That's, there's, there's no uh, such exception. Uh, we are responsible to God for sharing the gospel. That's very, it's the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Does this mean that we all preach or that we all work in kids' ministry? Of course not. The way in which God uses us to accomplish his, purchase, uh, his purposes vary uh, as much as we vary from each other. We should avoid cookie-cutter methodologies and standard approaches to evangelism as if our method is responsible for salvation. No amount of technique or oratory skill can soften a heart and turn someone to Christ. J.I. Packer, in his book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, says, If we forget that only God can give faith, we will start to think that the making of converts depends not on God, but on us, and that the decisive factor is the way in which we evangelize. And this line of thought, consistently followed through, will lead us far astray. Each context presents unique challenges and opportunities for sharing the gospel, and we'd be, we'd be wise to learn our own context. A college campus might have students who are really thoughtfully engaging with world perspectives and worldviews and, and you know, where they fit in with all that, and maybe they're eager to learn. You might also have people who could care less, right? There, there are challenges and there's opportunities. Uh, maybe you're at a workplace that doesn't allow or doesn't encourage or has a culture of sort of shying away from religious talk. Okay, there's also an opportunity to live and work side by side with them for years. There's, there's, there are challenges and there are opportunities. Um, Manassas presents those as well. Kids, if you're in school, 
If you're, if you're talking with your friends, there will be opportunities that you have that no one else has to talk to your friends and engage with them. Ultimately, no amount of contextualization, experience, or charisma can save people, though. It's when we, rely, when we rely on these, instead of God's grace, we place ourselves on the level of God and demonstrate a lack of faith in his sovereignty. So, what do we do then? Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to God the Father who is in heaven. Perhaps the value and necessity of light is lost on us today, but to those living before the discovery of electricity or gas, light was a precious thing indeed. Has anyone ever been outside on a cloudy night where you can't see the stars? Izzy, have you ever done that? You've never been outside on a cloudy night? Hey, well, you should try sometime. Aiden, have you ever done that? Most of the time it's cloudy a lot? Fair enough. Um, I know I've certainly done some, some of that. I've done, been on long camping trips where we're far away from civilization. There are no city lights. There, you know, and it's a cloudy night and there's no stars. And it's dark. And it's really quite dark. Um, and without light, life cannot last. In college, I took a class on thermodynamics. Not my favorite. Um, we were studying energy and temperature and discussed what would happen if the sun was to die or to disappear. The sun provides light for the trees and the plants. Um, and the same light heats up the earth and keeps us, keeps us from freezing. Without the sun, most plants would die in a couple weeks, um, and our lakes and rivers and oceans would eventually freeze over. Without light from the sun, earth would die. So Jesus calls uh, the church to be the very light of the world. And without this, uh, sorry, Jesus calls us to be the very light of the world. We must respond. Notice how Jesus pairs our identity as light directly with action. To be light is to let it shine. To hide light goes against its very nature. To sit idly by, to keep Christ to ourselves, is akin to hiding the light under a basket, starving the world of the very life that it needs. This is contrary to Christ's command and is simply not compatible with the identity that we have in Christ. Paul writes in Romans 10:14, "How then will they call on them who have, who, whom they have not believed? And how that, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching?" This passage is often used to defend and promote international missions, and rightly so. But I think many of us, myself included, look at it and see it as someone else's responsibility. Do we consider the reality that there are untold number of people living right here in Manassas and Northern Virginia that know next to nothing about Christ? They might know the name, but they don't know Christ. Who's responsible for proclaiming the gospel to them? Jesus commands us to preach the gospel to the nations. Sometimes we look at Northern Virginia area and we count ourselves blessed because the literal nations have been gathered together. We don't have to go very far. They're right here. Um, and that's awesome. That's a huge opportunity, and we should take advantage of it. But the command is just as true for those living in remote and rural contexts with less global representation. Regardless of where we live, there will be people that need the gospel, and it is our responsibility to share it with them. In 1874, Charles Spurgeon spoke to his pastor's college annual conference and said, Millions have never heard the name of Jesus. Hundreds of millions have never, have never seen a missionary, have only seen a missionary once, sorry, in their lives, and know nothing of our king. Shall we let them perish? Can we go to our beds and sleep while China, India, Japan, and other nations are being damned? Our answer must be a resounding no. While, Christ, while it is Christ who ultimately saves, we, and we would do well to never forget this, we have been tasked with the wonderful job of sharing what is so sweet and precious to us. There is a tension here between God's sovereignty and our individual responsibility. 
The Bible clearly affirms both, and yet to us, they can seem contradictory. I would encourage everyone to read J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, as he does a deep dive in this question. And I can actually thank Sarah and Andrew, because I have their old copy of it now, which I'm going through. Um, however, today, we're not going to get into all the, the nuance there, but I do want to remind us that there are things about the very nature of God that we, as finite humans, will never understand, or will likely never understand. Um, that's why we have faith. Um, we don't have to understand everything, and trying to do so um, in itself makes us an idol and replaces that with God. So where does that leave us? We understand that the church to be God's people across time is one under the headship of Christ. The church has been tasked by Christ to share the gospel with everyone, without exception, and to train and equip Christians as they deepen in their understanding and relationship with God. As individuals, we are responsible for carrying this out in our own lives as members of God's people while trusting God to work in people's hearts. Not only do we trust God to work in the hearts of those receiving the message, but we trust God to work in our own hearts as well. We need not despair when we read Christ's command to go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Take heart knowing that Christ's death on the cross and subsequent resurrection has made all of this possible. All authority has been given to Christ, and he now sends us. What is asked of us is faith. Faith that God's word would not return void, and that the Holy Spirit, would, that we are already sealed with, as we learned about in Ephesians earlier this year, will give us the words to say at the right time. If you're hearing this and don't have the faith that I'm referring to, know that it is available to you. Christ's death stands above time for all people, regardless of anything you have or have not done. His mercy is more than we can possibly fathom. All that is needed of you is to believe. Believe that Christ died and was raised from the dead, that we might be reconciled to God, and believe that Christ is Lord, your Lord. If you want to talk more about this, you can talk to me, Lars, or whoever it is that brought you here today, or really anyone here today, and we'd love to talk about, you, talk about this with you. There's nothing more important that we can talk about than this. So with that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would fill us with your spirit more and more every day, that we might go out, not in our own strength, not in our own energy, um, but we would go out humbly in response to what you have already done for us. We don't go out and preach your word. We don't go out and disciple each other and, and live lives together in our own strength. Lord, we do all that because of what you have done for us. There's nothing that we can do to earn or to, to deserve the salvation that you've already given us. And so we, we just lovingly accept and, and, return, and in return, we, we are your servants. We are your hands and your feet. Guide us as we go out that we might glorify you and that you might build your church. In your name, amen.